Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. So um, as Sue said uh, this morning, the theme for our year is I gave my life away and blank. And each series that we're doing this year is filling in that blank with a different aspect of what it means to give our life away and have uh, Christ living in us. And the blank that we're filling in in this series is proclaiming, proclaiming freedom. Sorry. Um, but what I want to do is focus a bit on the first half, and then in the last few minutes of the talk, we'll see how it ties into freedom. So I gave my life away um, is actually based on Galatians 2.20, which is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I was thinking, if, if we have Christ living in us, what should that look like? What, what should that, um, yeah, how should that be reflected in the world? And so I can't help thinking, if it is God living in us, we should be reflecting the character of God. And if we had to summarize the character of God in one word, what would it be? And I think scripture tells us that single word, if we had to sum it up, is holiness. And uh, Ian read one of the best passages around holiness, uh, I know of from Peter's first letter uh, to the church in Asia Minor. So let's explore what this means. So before we, um, if we go to the next slide, before we uh, launch into um, what Peter is saying in this passage, it helps to give some, some setting. So Peter is writing this letter to the church in Asia Minor in about 63 AD, which is about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. So in those 30 years, the church has grown like wildfire through Asia Minor, but it's facing a lot of persecution. So uh, the Roman Empire is still uh, at the height of its power. Uh, Nero has been uh, emperor for 10 years or so by the time he's writing. Now, if you don't remember your Roman history, uh, Nero was one of the most brutal uh, and most amoral emperors that Rome ever had. So if you imagine uh, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Mugabe, all rolled into one, you get an idea of how brutal uh, Nero was and how ruthless he was. And this is when Rome is under, uh, has this system of pledging allegiance and worshipping the emperor uh, as a divinity. And so each citizen had to, uh, once a year, uh, worship and, and declare that the emperor was God. And of course, the new believers in the church weren't doing this, and so they were uh, subject to torture and killings, um, and the church was under persecution. And this was slowly getting worse and worse until probably around a year after Peter writes this letter, um, there's the great fire in Rome. And for those of you, again, who know your history, you'll remember um, this is the fire that kind of leveled Rome. Um, the thought from the historians is that Nero actually started the fire so that he could clear a space for his new palace. Um, things went wrong and he ended up blaming the Christians uh, for the fire and that just led to even greater persecutions where Christians were burnt. So imagine you're in 63 AD, the Roman Empire is at the height of its strength, there's this brutal emperor, um, the world is topsy-turvy, it's hostile to this new movement. And what is Peter's advice to the church? What is his word of wisdom and his word of encouragement to people living in this upside down hostile world? And the whole letter that we're going to look at, the passage that Ian read is just a bit of it, is a call to personal holiness. He's saying in the face of all this 
topsy-turvy, uh, upside-down kind of world, the greatest advice that Peter gives them is a call to personal holiness. Let your life um, show the character of God to a society that is uh, hostile and antagonistic uh, to you. So I should do a caveat because holiness gets a bit of a bad rap. Um, we think of holiness as this kind of finger-wagging, Bible-thumping, holier-than-thou sourpuss who has a suspicion that somebody somewhere is having fun and we're going to have to put an end to it. Um, that's kind of the negative image we have of holiness. And even if we take another word like perfect, so Jesus himself said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Even perfectionism is taken as a negative. Um, so we really have to recover uh, a sense of the meaning and the importance uh, of holiness. So what I want to do in the next half hour or so is, is um, understand holiness, a right understanding of holiness, how we foster holiness, and the ultimate purpose of holiness. So holiness is, has a couple of different aspects. It is something that is imputed to us, something that happens almost immediately, but it's also something that is a process. So in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so that idea is, is around when we stand before the judge, because of what Christ has done, our sin has been imputed to him and his righteousness has been imputed to us. So in that sense, in that moment where we stand before the judge, Jesus' holiness has been uh, given to us. So in that sense, we are seen as holy already in the eyes of God. But at the same time, it's something that we're called to. So in the passage that Ian ran, uh, read, it, Peter also says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. This is a command. This is something that we have to work at, for it's written, be holy as I am holy. And this is what theologians refer to as sanctification. It is the process of being made holy or growing in holiness. So in one sense, it, it is something that we have already, that when God looks at us, he sees holiness. But in another sense, it's something that we have to work at and grow in. Um, and the only way I can put them together is you can imagine when God sees us as judge, he sees that Jesus' holiness has been imputed to us already. But when God sees us as a father, he sees us as children who still need to be trained and to mature in holiness. So it's something that we, are, we have already, but we need to work towards uh, as well. Now, in this passage in Peter, he gives us two main images for understanding holiness. And the first is adoption. Um, in verse 18, he says, It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. And that word redemption is actually a legal or a business term that refers to when a slave was bought out of their bondage, bought out of slavery. And, and the flip side of that is that they were then restored to their rightful master or adopted into a new family. So the idea of redeeming is to, to buy you out of this slavery and adopt you into a new family. And so that image of father and children, Peter uses throughout the, the letter. Um, and as you know, there is a resemblance to parents uh, when you're a father and child or mother and child because of genetics. But even within an adopted family, uh, the adopted children will start to talk and walk and take on the mannerisms of, of their parents. And so the image that Peter is giving us here is, is holiness is simply 
resembling our adopted father, reflecting the goodness and the love and the grace of our adopted father. It's not some fuddy-duddy thing that is stiff and formal. It's this family resemblance um, to the father that has adopted us. Is that making sense? Now, the second image he gives us uh, in, the, in the book, if we go to the next, in the letter, is, is referring to the Old Testament law. And this takes a bit more uh, digging because we're not as familiar with the Torah and the Old Testament law. So Peter was a Jewish man writing to mainly Jewish believers uh, in Asia Minor, and so they were very familiar uh, with the Torah. Um, but we have to dig a little bit to understand this image. So when Peter says, it is written, be holy as I am holy, he's actually quoting Leviticus 11 and Le Leviticus 19. And if you read those two chapters, they are some of the most obscure things you can imagine. So these are all the laws about uh, what you can eat. So you, can, you, don't, you can't eat eagles or hawks uh, or bats, which probably makes sense in the time of COVID, <laughs> but you can eat locusts and grasshoppers. Um, it talks about clothing. You can't wear material that is woven from two different kinds of threads. It, it talks about shaving. So you can't shave the hair on the sides of your head and you can't trim your beard. So it's all of these arcane rules. And you think, and both of those chapters start out with God saying, I am holy, so be holy, and then launches into all of these things. And as a modern reader, you think, is God really concerned with our external appearance? Are these little details really that important to God? So how do we make sense uh, of that? And so I can't help thinking what, what this is, is God the Father talking to the children of Israel when they are still in their infancy in the faith. Um, and so the, the result of all these rules, it's not so much the rules, but the result of these rules, what they do is they make the children of Israel think about every detail of their lives, and it also sets them apart from all the other cultures around them. So if you look at an Orthodox Jew who follows the, the Torah, they stick out like a sore thumb. Like in a police lineup, you could tell the Orthodox Jew right away. The effect of this law is to set you apart. That's the meaning of holiness, set apart for a separate purpose and different from everything else around you. So just like a parent teaches a child externally first with, with external habits, because as a parent, you then hope that that habit then shapes the heart. And then people live from the heart out. So as a child, your parents are focused on external things. You know, you teach your child to wash, your hand, to wash their hands because you hope that when they grow up, they'll have a sense of hygiene. You teach your, your child to say please and thank you because you hope that when they grow up, they'll have an attitude of gratitude. Um, you teach your child to share because you hope that when they grow up, they'll, be, they'll have a generous heart. So you teach your children these external things because you hope that these external habits will shape the heart. And when they grow older, the heart will then drive the actions. And so I can't help thinking what God was doing with this Old Testament law, what Peter is referring to. He's saying, as children of Israel, when you were young in the faith, God gave you these laws that shaped your external habits. But now that you have the full revelation of Jesus and you see the Messiah, those habits that shaped your heart now live from your heart outwards. So as children, you lived from the outside in, as mature adults live from the inside out. And he, he then 
kind of harks forward to the final day. In verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And the Greek word for revealed is apocalypsis. It's, it's the apocalypse. It's referring to that final coming. So he's saying in the same way that when you followed the Torah, the Old Testament law, you stuck out like a sore thumb, like an Orthodox Jew walking down the street. On that final day, when God is looking not at the outward appearance, but at the heart, will your heart stick out like a sore thumb and be separated to God and, and different from the rest of the world? Does that make sense? Right. It's that parent talking to a child, and now the child is mature and has the full revelation. Uh, and what used to be an external habit is now an attitude of the heart. Is that making, making sense? So then Peter goes on, how do we foster holiness? And he talks about four things in this short passage. He talks about taking effort. So the second half of that Galatians 2 uh, verse, which is, I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The second half is, I live, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I think too often we think living by faith is an excuse for spiritual laziness. You know, that, that attitude of let go and let God. Um, but I think that refers more to control. What we're called to is to let go of control of our lives, give control to God, but it doesn't mean stop making an effort and stop working uh, at your spiritual life. If you look at the language that Peter is using, it's all verbs, it's all action words, it's all in the imperative, it's, he's giving us commands. He's saying, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, purify yourselves by obeying the truth, love one another deeply, rid yourselves of malice and deceit. These are all action words, and they're all commands for us to, to work at these things. And even uh, Paul, in his letters, um, as, you, as you know, often uses the image of the, of the athletes disciplining and training themselves. Um, you know, he, he says, I run the race, I have my eye on the prize, I drive my body hard, I make it obey me. It's this kind of discipline um, that they are both saying we need in our um, spiritual uh, life. So. How do we do this? Um, how, how is our effort uh, guided? And it's through the Word of God. So twice in this short passage, um, Peter says, you were born again through the living and enduring Word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah, the, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And what he's saying is that we have to take these deep scriptural truths that we find in God's Word and apply them and internalize them and, and um, make them ours, if you will. Um, this is what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher in the last century, said, uh, described as talking to yourself instead of listening to yourself. And what I think he's trying to capture here is we have the, these flow of feelings and, and random thoughts, and sometimes we feel like we just are hostage to them. Whatever we're feeling, whatever we're thinking just gets acted out without us even being consciously aware of it. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is we need to take hold of these truths and apply them consciously to what we're, not just to be innocent bystanders to our thoughts and feelings. And this is what we see in Psalm 42 and 43. Um, David writes, why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. Can you see what's happening here? It's like David is stepping back and observing his heart and saying, why am I feeling downcast? Why are you downcast, my soul? And then he speaks truth into his heart. He says, 
put your hope in God. What we have here, 4,000 years before it was described by modern psychiatry, is cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT is this modern idea that you become aware of the mental scripts that are going on in your head and in your heart. You, you make them explicit and then you speak to them and you change them. And here we have David doing this 4,000 years before modern psychiatry thinks it's an invented uh, CBT. And even the message version of this passage says, life is a journey you must travel with, a deep, is a journey you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. This idea, you know, Paul calls it taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Um, so this idea is that we're not slaves to whatever thoughts or emotions are coming through us, but we are actively and intentionally taking the word of God and speaking it to our hearts and minds. Is that making sense? The third thing to fostering holiness is to, like the law, examine every detail of our lives. This is a, big, a picture of Bishop uh, J.C. Ryle, who probably wrote the most famous uh, book on holiness in Victorian times. It's, it's called appropriately Holiness. And uh, one of the passages is this, true holiness does not consist merely of believing and feeling, but of doing and bearing. Our tongues, our tempers, our natural passions, our inclinations, our conduct as parents and children, masters and servants, husbands and wives, rulers and subjects, our dress, our employment of time, our behavior in business, our demeanor in sickness and health, in riches and poverty. All of these details should be reflected in holiness and should be touched by holiness. What, what we're saying here is that every detail of our lives should reflect the character of God. So you can't um, tell a little white lie and think that it isn't really changing who you are. You can't kind of bend the rules a little bit when you're filling out your taxes and think it isn't really changing who you really are on the inside. You can't watch a little bit of pornography or you know, some violent thing on Netflix and think that it doesn't really change who you are on the inside. Um, every little act that we do is shaping who we are becoming. And sometimes it's easy to think holiness is about some big thing, like becoming a missionary, giving up everything and going to Africa. And what we see here, what Jesus is saying, is that it's every little detail that is shaping us into the person he means us to be. Uh, at the end of one of his parables, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. The idea here, you can see how Peter is referring back to the law. The, the Jews would have been familiar with the law affecting every little detail of their lives. And, and what Peter is saying here, let holiness permeate every little detail of your life. Because that is how you are becoming shaped into the person that God means you to be and wants you to be. And then the last thing in fostering holiness is having the right attitude. So in verse 17, Peter says, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And all through his letter, he uses this idea of Sometimes he says um, foreigners, sometimes he says strangers, sometimes he says aliens. But the Greek word for it um, is actually closer to a traveler in a foreign land, a sojourner. We're just people who, what Peter is, what Peter is saying is that we are just passing through this world. Let's not get too comfortable or too friendly with the world. It, it doesn't mean we don't invest ourselves in the world, but it, it means that we are conscious of the fact that we are citizens of a different kingdom, uh, of a different country. We don't actually 
belong here and our allegiance is not to the systems of the world here. James actually takes it a step further. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And that is really sobering. That, um, again, it's this idea of being intentional with what our thoughts and our hearts, where, where our thoughts and hearts are leading us. Are we becoming perhaps a bit too friendly and too comfortable with the world? Or are we conscious of just passing through and actually our hearts and minds belong somewhere else, in a different kingdom, in a different country, and to a different ruler? So why should we make all this effort? This sounds like a lot of hard work. Why, why are we aiming for holiness at all? And that's where we talk about the ultimate purpose of holiness. And one purpose is to train us for heaven. Um, Hebrews 12 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Um, so one aspect of holiness is to prepare us for the world to come. And this is the way uh, Bishop Ryle puts it in his book. Sanctification is absolutely necessary in order to train and prepare us for heaven. Most people hope to go to heaven when they die, but few take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place whose king is a holy God. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it's clear that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth. We must be saints before we die if we are to be saints afterwards in glory. The whole idea here is if we don't um, love holiness and if, we, if we're not striving for holiness in this world, we're not really going to enjoy it when we get uh, to the in the life to come. And this is an image that C.S. Lewis uh, picks up on. I, I think it's is it the abolition of man, where he has this kind of fable about people who die and are taken on a bus trip to a valley. And, and, you, and he says some of the people just walk around this valley and can't stand being there. They're not enjoying it, they're uncomfortable, and they want to get back on the bus and, and move away. And others are just loving the valley and just moving deeper in. And just this idea that... Um, if our hearts are not right, we're not going to be enjoying heaven if we don't start fostering being trained for heaven uh, here. So that's the first purpose of holiness. The second purpose is not in the hereafter, but in the here and now. And this is where we circle back to the current uh, series that we're in. It's to bring us to freedom. Um, in, verse, uh, in the next chapter in, in Peter's letter, he says, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil live as servants of God. So what you see here is side by side, he says, live as free men, and he says, live as servants of God. The two are equivalent to, to each other. He's saying, when you live a life of service to God, you are actually being freed up to become the person that he means you to be. And when you seek to be free of God, you actually start becoming more and more enslaved to your own desires and, and wishes and you become less and less human, uh, and less and less the person he means you to be. And there is a really um, compelling image in Pinocchio. Um, I think this is the real power of fairy tales. Um, and it turns out uh, Carlo Collodi, who wrote it, um, actually trained as a seminarian before he became a writer. So I think the parallels are, um, are intentional. But how, how many people remember the story of Pinocchio? Most of you, not everyone. So let me just recap quickly. So there's Geppetto, the old puppet master who doesn't have any children. He carves out a wooden puppet in the shape of a, a little boy. 
um, a, the good fairy comes by and brings the puppet to life. And Pinocchio, although he realizes he's alive, realizes he's not a real boy, he's just a, a puppet. And so the adventures of Pinocchio are everything that he needs to discover to become a real human boy, a real human being. And um, there's this section where he starts to go to school and he learns what it means to take on responsibility and to follow the rules and to, to become a real boy. And then he gets tired of following the rules. And this uh, other fellow, other student at the school, Candlewick, uh, leads him astray. And they go to Toyland, um, if you remember that bit. And Toyland is a place where you don't have to follow rules. Uh, you can be happy and have fun all day long. And the more and more time Candlewick and Pinocchio spend in Toyland, the more and more they turn into donkeys. Um, and there's this image that as you um, follow this illusion of freedom and lack of rules and having fun, you become more and more animal-like, more and more enslaved, and less and less the person that God means you to be, and the less and less the person that he wants to be. Um, and it's only when Candlewick fully turns into a donkey and can't talk anymore that Pinocchio suddenly realizes that um, this is not the right way to go and he escapes from Toyland. So that's a graphic, graphic image um, of this kind of idea that there's a, an appearance of freedom, freedom from God, that actually ends up enslaving you. And there's a service to God that actually ends up freeing you. And that's captured in Augustine's prayer. Um, he, he prays, help us to know you, that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whose service is perfect freedom. Serving God brings us to that freedom, that place where we can actually become the people that he means us to be. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've looked at uh, holiness uh, and the two images that Peter gives us in this letter of holiness as adoption and, and just starting to resemble our adopted father and the law, the idea that holiness should permeate every detail of our lives and should set us apart from the culture around us. He gives us four things for, for fostering holiness, that it takes effort and discipline, that it means incorporating and speaking the deep truths that are in the word of God to ourselves. It means examining the details of our lives and it means the right attitude of heart, which is to be a sojourner, somebody who is traveling through this world but doesn't really belong here. And the purpose of holiness is to fit us for heaven, but also to lead us to freedom in this life. Now, I don't want to stop at this slide because then it just seems like a theoretical thing. So I want to leave you with a challenge. Um, and this really taps into the same challenge that Peter gave to the churches in Asia Minor. In, in the face of a world that is hostile uh, to, to the gospel, what should our response be? And he challenges them to personal holiness. And so I came across, uh, many of you will have read uh, the book by Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness, where he gives this kind of framework for judging um, whether something in your life is helping you in that walk towards holiness or hindering you. And he lays out that challenge, like Peter does, to examine every detail of life and to put it through this filter and to think, is it helping me towards holiness or hindering me? And so the, the fourfold framework is, is this helpful physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually? So that's based on 1 Corinthians uh, 6.12, which is where Paul writes, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. 
So not everything is helpful. Even though we have freedom, not everything we choose to do with our freedom will help us. Second filter is, does it bring me under its power? And that's based on the second half of that, which is everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. So our freedom can lead us to make choices that end up enslaving us. And the challenge is to be clear not to use our freedom uh, that way. The third filter is, does it hurt others? And this is based on 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. So it's that idea of we are free to do whatever we want, and our society tells us, you know, we, we should cherish our personal freedom. But as Christians, we don't use that freedom in a way that is a stumbling block to a fellow believer or to someone else in the world who might look at us and make a judgment about, um, the, the, you know, judgment about God or about Christianity. And the fourth filter is, does it glorify God? And that's based on 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Um, so the challenge here is if you, um, there is something in your life, if you want to examine, you know, how do you act at home? How do you act at work? How do you spend your spare time? What are you watching on Netflix? Um, you know, use this fourfold framework. Is it helpful? Does it bring me under its power? Does it hurt others? Does it glorify God? Because in the end, growing in holiness is about this intentional um, process. The caveat I'll leave you with is this only works if you apply it to yourself. The temptation is to apply it to somebody else and point, start pointing out how they need to grow in holiness. And, and I don't want to be responsible for the fights that will happen when you do, if you do that. So really, this is, this is a personal challenge, you know. In going from infancy to an adult, the challenge is to let God speak to your own heart and to do that, this examination for yourself, not on behalf of somebody else. So I'll leave that challenge with you.